We are in week two of this series that we have been doing, Life in the Spirit, looking at the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And tonight we're going to be focusing in on the idea of the Holy Spirit with us and in us. And um, last week in our introduction to this series, our big idea was this, that the Holy Spirit is a divine person who helps us. And that centered around three statements. The first statement was that the Holy Spirit is a person. He's not a force, but he is a person. He has a personality. The second statement we looked at is that the Holy Spirit is divine, that he is the third person of the triune Godhead. So the Holy Spirit is God. So he's a divine person. And the last statement we looked at was that he helps us, that that that's what, uh, when Jesus said the helper, it's what his name means, one called alongside to help. And that's what he desires to do in our lives. Well, tonight, in part two, we're going to begin to look at how the Holy Spirit helps us. We're going to spend a couple of weeks on this. And once again, I want to give you three statements about the Holy Spirit to form our big idea tonight. So if you're taking notes, statement number one is that the Holy Spirit is after us. Statement number two, that is the Holy Spirit is or will be in us. And statement number three, that the Holy Spirit seals us. And so this is our big idea for tonight. The Holy Spirit is, is a divine person who is after us to bring us to Christ, comes in us when we embrace Jesus, and who seals us for the day of redemption. And so we're going to break that down tonight. And uh, we're going to begin by looking at John 14, verses 16 and 17. Jesus, again, this is uh, in the upper room. It's on the night before he's going to go to the cross. Um, He says to his disciples, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So the first thing we want to talk about tonight is that the Holy Spirit is after us because Jesus said here that the Holy Spirit is with you. And do you realize that before you came to Christ, before you got saved, that the Holy Spirit was with you? And you might be wondering how? How, Pastor Rob, was the Holy Spirit with me? Well, he was hanging around you. He was with you, um, and he was seeking to draw you to Jesus. You could say this, that before you came to Christ, that the Holy Spirit was pursuing you. You might say that he was chasing after you. In fact, the Holy Spirit has been called by some the hound of heaven. Maybe you've heard a pastor use that term before as the Holy Spirit it being the hound of heaven, that, that he's you know in hot pursuit. And that term was really uh, given about the Holy Spirit back in the 1800s by a man by the name of Francis Thompson. And he wrote a poem called The Hound of Heaven. And the poem was really his testimony. And Thompson had been a medical student. He was studying
studying to be a, a doctor, but he dropped out of medical school. He became addicted to opium, and he was in a deep depression. He even in, attempted suicide. And in the poem, Thompson describes how the Holy Spirit was chasing him all the way that he just wouldn't let go of him. And he described it in this way, with an unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace. The Holy Spirit was chasing after him. And some of you can relate to that. In your life, you can look back and at the, just how you know, things were orchestrated and you coming to Christ and you can pinpoint how the Holy Spirit was after you, that you were running from God, just like Thompson was, but, but God was chasing after you. He was determined. He was unrelenting in his chase of you to get a hold of your life. That's the work of the Holy Spirit with us, that he is with the unbeliever pursuing us or pursuing the unbeliever to bring them to Jesus. Jesus gives us some further insight into this in John 15, 26. Turn over there um, of how the Holy Spirit chases us. Jesus said this in John 15, verse 26. And he, the Holy Spirit, will testify of me. Another translation puts it this way. He will tell you about me. And one other translation says it this way. He will speak plainly of me. And so this is one of the works of the Holy Spirit is to open the heart of the unbeliever to salvation. It's to open the heart of the unbeliever to Christ. And so it was God, the Holy Spirit, who really awakened your need of a savior, of your need to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. That feeling that you got, that thing that was happening inside of you when you said yes to Jesus, that was the Holy Spirit working on your heart. Now, Jesus gives further insight into this process in John 16, verse 7. If you want to turn there, John 16. It says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Now, that's probably something at that moment the disciples didn't agree with, like they didn't want to see Jesus go away. For he says, but if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, now watch this, when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. And of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And so Jesus tells us that one of the first things the Holy Spirit does here is to convict the world of sin. So when the Holy Spirit is with you, you're running from God, and he's chasing after you, one of the things that he's seeking to do is to convict you of sin. And that's when, you know, you all of a sudden you start feeling weird about you. You know, you start feeling like this sense of, of there's something wrong, and you begin to be convicted of your own sin. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing. He's convincing us. This is what he was doing in our lives prior to coming to Christ, that we were sinners, that we needed a Savior. So before anyone can ever figure out that they need a Savior, they got to realize that they're sinners, right? That's the first step. 
They have to come to that place where they, they realize, unless you really come to a place of understanding that you were in bad shape, you're not going to look for a savior. As long as a person thinks that they're good enough or religious enough or holy enough, they will never look for help. Jesus said, it's the sick that need a doctor. But how many people do you know, and I won't ask for a show of hands, but I bet you there's some of you in this room that you never want to go to the doctor. You're one of those who are like, I'm okay. Got a temperature of 110. I'm okay. It's going to pass, you know. You got a radical pain, you know, in your leg. Something's broken. I'm okay, you know, and you just are that way. It's like it's going to take you, you know, getting to your deathbed before they can get you to the hospital. Well, some people are like that. Like, I'm okay, but they're not. You know, that's that's foolish to do that when we're physically ill, but it's it's even more dumb to do that spiritually, to be in that place where you think like, hey, I'm Okay, so the Holy Spirit's job is to convict the world of sin, and that's one of the things that we need to be praying about in relationship to our friends and family members that don't know Jesus, is that they would experience a conviction of sin. It's like praying that the Holy Spirit, the hound of heaven, would sick them. You know, that's what we're praying, you know, that he would just sick them, you know, that they would, that they would come to that place of just realizing, I, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. Now listen, it's not your job to convict them of their sin. It's the Holy Spirit's job to do that. Let me say that again. It's not your job to convict them of their sin. It's the Holy Spirit's job to do that. In fact, when Christians try to be the convictors, it never comes out as convicting. You know what it comes out as? As condemnation. It's like 13-year-old Elizabeth. She was a Girl Scout who was congratulated because, get this, she sold 11,000 200 boxes of Girl Scout cookies. 11,200 boxes of Girl Scout cookies. And she was on the news and people asked her, how did you do it? And this is what she said. She said, you got to look people in the eye and make them feel guilty. (laughs) That's how I sold 11,000 boxes of cookies. Well, that's what happens when we try to convict people of sin is we just make them feel guilty. We lay, lay trips on them, and we you know, just throw condemnation on them. So listen, listen. Don't try to be the Holy Spirit in your spouse's life, okay? Can, can you just hear me on that? Okay. That's not your job. To play the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit be the Holy Spirit. So, so when you leave it to the Holy Spirit, he drives a person to that place where they see their deep need of a Savior, And they desire forgiveness. Remember in our study in the book of Acts? When we saw there in Acts chapter 2, Holy Spirit falls upon the apostles. And remember there, on the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches a sermon. And 3,000 people get saved. And remember what it said there in Acts chapter 2 about the people as they were listening to Peter as he was preaching that sermon? It says they were cut to the heart. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. He cuts you in the heart. But here's the thing I want you to notice as well. One more thing about 
about this. Notice that, that it says he convicts the world of sin, singular. Not sins, plural, but sin singular. So it's not like he's going to come along and he's saying, hey, that was wrong and that was bad. It's not like he's going to convict people of you know, individual sins like lying or speeding. I mean, is anybody ever convicted of speeding? I mean, really? You know, there was a time. I was teaching out at the Bible College in Marietta. And I got a call, this is several years ago now, that a dear brother in our, in our church, he'd been here for a really, really long time, Don Porter, had, had passed away. And so I'm, I'm racing from the, the uh, Bible college to get to Oceanside, to get to his house, to be with the family, and I'm coming down 76 here, and I get pulled over by a motorcycle cop because I was speeding. I was, I was speeding. I was going like 70 and a 55 or whatever it is. And I told him, I said, I am so sorry. I'm a pastor. And somebody, (laughs) I go, somebody in my church just died. And I'm trying to get to the house to be with the family. And I just wasn't paying attention. And he walks back to his motorcycle. About five minutes, he comes back up and he hands me a ticket. (laughs) And he says, he says, keep up the good work. But see, the the Holy Spirit, he's not convicting us of of those things, of those individual sins. Listen, your conscience does that. God has given us a conscience, and our conscience convicts us of right and wrong. Our conscience convicts us of those individual sins, and when we ignore our conscience, it gets hardened. And that conviction, it's not as strong. And then the Bible even can talk about how how your conscience, if you continue to ignore it, it can become seared. And when, when something is seared, it's like it's burned. It's like when you get a burn on your flesh and the nerve endings in that area of your body where you've been burned, it's like you don't feel anymore. That's what to be seared. It means to be past feeling. So God has placed in each of us a conscience that convicts us. And the Holy Spirit does work in conjunction with that of our individual sins of right and wrong. But the Holy Spirit in in the life of of the, the unbeliever, he's convicting them of one particular sin. And that sin, Jesus identifies it here as unbelief. That's what he's convicting of. Notice again, Jesus says, and he will convict the world of sin because they did not believe on me. And the Holy Spirit convicts people that their unbelief is a sin, that they want to do something about their unbelief. Suddenly they're like, you know what, something's wrong here. And it's interesting, though, that many people don't consider unbelief to be a sin. There's a lot of people today that think unbelief is a mark of intelligence, Right? And they're like, hey, I'm just so smart. I'm just so intelligent. I'm not, I'm not like those silly Christians, you know? I, I know better than that. I don't have to have a crutch like they do. But Jesus said it's a sin. In fact, it's the worst sin because it's the sin of unbelief that pre- prevents someone from being forgiven of all the other sins. 
in their life. So the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin because Jesus said they do not believe in me. Now let me just say this word to you. If you are closely related to an unbeliever, if you're married to an unbeliever, if you have an unbeliever living in your house, if you are around an unbeliever a lot, I want to encourage you tonight. In your group time, get special prayer. Get some prayer. Because we want to bear that burden with you. And it's really hard. It's really, really hard to be married to somebody who is not a Christian or have someone in your house that's not a Christian or someone that you're working with who is not a Christian who is being convicted of their sin and their sin of unbelief because they're miserable to hang around with. And they will say the meanest things and they'll do the harshest things because a person who's living under that conviction of sin, they can be a tyrant because they're struggling and they're wrestling with. You know, it's been said, when you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the the dog that gets hit is the one that barks the loudest, you know? Well, well, that's like the person who's being convicted of sin. They're, They're just... You know, it's coming out of them. So let those in your group pray for you tonight if you are living in that situation. So the Holy Spirit is with you, chasing after you to convict you of your need for Jesus. But notice what else Jesus said, that the Holy Spirit is is convicting us before we're saved. Notice verse 10, he says, and he'll convict the world of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. So the Holy Spirit convicts people of righteousness. What does Jesus mean there? Well, he, he, he's convincing people that they're not good enough in their own righteousness. That they're not good enough in their own good deeds, that their, their own religious works, their own righteous behavior is not good enough because when Jesus was here, he was the standard of righteousness. He was that standard of perfection. But Jesus said, but you see me no more. But now that Jesus is gone, the world has created their own standard of righteousness. And you know what that is like, don't you? Typically, it's, it's typically this. I'm not perfect. I, I know that. <laughs> I'm not as bad as that guy. Right? That's people's standard of righteousness. So, so if they, you were to put a map out of righteousness, it would sort of look like a, a gauge. And at the very bottom would be the worst possible people. I mean, the guy who's in solitary confinement for committing the most heinous of crimes, that's at the very bottom of the gauge for, for all the really, really bad criminals. And then you go up a little bit, maybe, you know, 20 degrees or, or 20% or 40%. And, and okay, here's, you know, that's a little bit better. And it's always fun to ask people, like, hey, where do you think you'd be at on that gauge? And they always pick higher than they really are, you know. Oh, I'd be probably about 75%. I'm a good person. At the top of the gauge is perfection, and all of us know that we're not perfect. But because we've created this 
standard of righteousness where we want to judge ourselves by other people, we can always find somebody who's worse than we are. So we're like, oh, I'm about 75% on that gauge. But you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that our righteousness, our goodness is like filthy rags before God. And so it's the Holy Spirit that is convicting a person of their lack of righteousness, of what righteousness is, and how they fall short of God's standard of righteousness. And one day, Jesus absolutely blew the minds of the people that were listening to him. Because he said this, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will never be able to enter into the kingdom of God. And when the people heard that, it was like, because they looked at the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders, that they were the standard, like they were the, the most holy guys around. And Jesus was saying about them, it's not good enough. It's not good enough. In fact, in our study on Sunday mornings in the book of Acts, we've been spending a lot of time because the last part of the book of Acts deals with the life of Paul the Apostle. And remember, Paul, and he tells his testimony in Philippians chapter 3, and he says, you know, I was a Pharisee. In fact, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And concerning the law, Paul said, I was blameless. I mean, I kept the law to the letter. And so from an outward perspective, anybody looking at Paul would go, that's a righteous dude. I mean, he is really, really has it together. On the outside, no one could bring any accusation against him. But, but Paul said this, he goes, I might have looked great on the outside, but on the inside, I was struggling with covetousness and jealousy. And the Holy Spirit was convicting Paul of his lack of being righteous. And so Paul would write later that he came to know, and he would say, like, just thank God, I came to know that there is a righteousness that is apart from the law. There's a righteousness in the law, but we can't keep it, right? Not consistently. So he'd say, I'm so thankful there's a righteousness that's apart from the law, and that righteousness is found in, by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. Paul would say, I could never make myself righteous, but the blood of Jesus does that for me. The blood of Jesus does what I could not do for myself. So the Holy Spirit is with us prior to coming to Christ, convicting us of our sin of unbelief, convicting us that we're not righteous enough. And there's one more thing. He's convicting us, Jesus says here, of judgment. Because the ruler of this world is judged. And so this is what the Holy Spirit does with an unbeliever. He shows them not only that they're a sinner and that Jesus has a perfect righteousness for them, But if they push away from that righteousness that Jesus offers them, if they say, I don't need Jesus, I don't want Christ, the further conviction then is that there is a judgment that is coming, that they are literally standing in, heading in the path of judgment. And Jesus says that is proved by what happened to the ruler of this world by what happened to Satan, that when Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the dead, Satan's fate was sealed. It was doom. It was set. So the Holy Spirit is convicting people of that reality. There's a judgment coming. 
The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it's appointed unto man to, to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Everybody's going to have to stand before God and basically answer one question. What did you do with my son? That's the question. Did you accept him or did you reject him? And Jesus said, you can't be neutral when it comes to me. You're either for me or you're against me. And that's the question that everybody is going to have to answer to. So it is a good thing when somebody is worried about going to hell. It's a good thing when somebody's worried about judgment. I mean, I can honestly say, I got saved because I didn't want to go to hell. I'm serious. I mean, I, I was young, and I, and I heard that there was a hell. It sounded like a horrible place. But if I gave my heart to Jesus, that, that I, I wouldn't go there. I'm like, sign me up. <laughs> you know, Like, I don't want to go to hell. It was innocent, but it was real. So that's the work that the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives before we are saved. He's pursuing us and seeking to draw us to Jesus. And once we stop running and surrender and embrace Jesus, the Holy Spirit then comes inside us. And Jesus said back there in John chapter 14, he said, the Holy Spirit's with you. They weren't born again yet, but he shall be in you. That happens at salvation. That happened to them. We'll talk about this at a later study, but it happened to them in John chapter 20 after the resurrection when Jesus appears to them in the upper room. Now he's died on the cross to pay the price for sins. Now he's risen from the dead. And they see, excuse me, they see him alive and risen. They believe in him. And in that moment, he says that he breathed on them and said, receive you the Holy Spirit. In that moment, the disciples were born again. They're indwelt in that moment with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes to live in your heart at that moment. And I want you to think of it like, like this way. I have this bottle of water. It's been sitting up here next to my black cup. This is me before Jesus. So the whole study, the Holy Spirit, the water has been preaching to the cup, convicting the cup. And he finally comes to that place where it's like, yeah, I want to give my life to Jesus. So then the Holy Spirit fills him, comes to live inside of him. That's what happens to us. The Holy Spirit comes and indwells your life. He comes and he lives inside of you. Isn't that amazing to think about? The spirit of the living God living inside of your life. I love what uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson said this. He says, what lies behind us and what lies before us are tiny matters compared to what lies within us. And what lies within you is the Holy Spirit of the living God. When you give your life to Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. Your guilt is removed. God declares you righteous. He declares that you are a new creation now in Christ. It's amazing. And the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. And we're going to talk more about in our next two studies of the role the Holy Spirit plays in us. Next week, we're going to talk about how the roles that the Holy Spirit plays in us is to conform us into the image of Jesus. And then the week after that, I'm going to actually be gone and Pastor Jamie's going to teach on how the Holy Spirit is seeking to produce in us the fruit of the Holy Spirit. 
But for our ending tonight, though, I want to finish on this thought, that when the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, he also seals you. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit. And I want us to think about what that means. In fact, this will be on the screen. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, Paul says this, In him you also trusted, in Jesus, after you heard the, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So that's how we're saved. We, we, we hear the gospel. We respond to it. We trust in it. In whom also having believed, once you believed, here's what happens. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So four things I want you to note tonight concerning what it means to be sealed with the Holy Spirit. Real quickly. First of all, being sealed in those days spoke of a finished transaction. In fact, even today when legal documents are processed, they're stamped with a seal to signify completion. And when, when, the, when the Lord says that you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, what he's saying, he's signifying that your salvation is complete. You don't have to do anything more. Your salvation is complete. You can't add to it. You can't take away from it. Your salvation is complete before the Lord. The second thing that a seal in those days spoke of was a mark of ownership. And this was an analogy that would have easily be understood by the believers in Ephesus because in that particular time in history, in the city of Ephesus was a major seaport of all of Asia. And so merchandise would come on ships in and out of that port all the time. And once the merchandise was packed for shipping they would then seal it and they would put a seal of wax. They'd put wax on the crate or on the item that they were shipping. And then they would take the signet ring of the person that it belonged to and they would press it into the wax and it would seal it. It would mark it as it belonged to the owner of that ring, that it would have his emblem, his family emblem on it. And so when it arrived in the next port... The servants that were coming to get it, they would look for, where's our master's seal? Where's his signet ring? Where's his stamp? It was a mark of ownership. Well, that's what God has done in your life. By placing the Holy Spirit in you, he has marked you as belonging to him. You belong to me. Let me use my little cup here for analogy again. So this cup that was just filled with the Holy Spirit, well, it also has an emblem on it. This is from my friend's church, and this is their church insignia. And so they, they stamped it. They marked this. They branded this into this cup. Well, in the same way, that's what God has done to you. Is he's marked you. It's like, hey, that guy, that gal belongs to me. The third thing that the sealing of the Holy Spirit spoke of was a guarantee of our inheritance, that God has promised to his children a rich inheritance. In fact, can, can you put up Ephesians uh, 1, uh, 13 and 14 again? And, and I want to look at verse 14. Notice what he says again, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit in you is 
the guarantee. That God, the promise that God has made to you of, of your inheritance. And this is what, what the Bible says about our inheritance. In Romans chapter 8, verse 16, it says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs and heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Isn't that amazing? Think about you are a joint heir with Jesus. It's crazy to think about that everything that belongs to Jesus is, is, is a part of your inheritance. We're also told in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Check this out. To an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be, be, be revealed at the last time. You have an inheritance that is incorruptible. It doesn't fade away. You know, let's say your grandpa passes away and he leaves you his brand new Mercedes-Benz. Just, he just drove it off the lot a week before. That's amazing. That's awesome. But, you know, a year or two from now, it's, it's going to become corrupted. It's going to not be worth as much. Ten years from now, it's going to have broken down a few times. And, and, you know, that's what happens to our inheritances here. But our inheritance is here. It's uncorruptible. It's reserved in heaven for you. You know, when you sign a living trust, or a will, it gets notarized that it is a genuine legal document. Well, the Holy Spirit is like the notarized mark on your life that the inheritance that God has for you, that you are a legitimate recipient of that. The fourth and final thing that the seal speaks of is that it's authentic. The wax seal on the letter or on the crate was like a signature or a personal letterhead. And if it was a king's seal, it couldn't be broken. You could be put to death for breaking the king's seal. But it was a sign that it was, okay, this is authentic. This came from the hand. This came from you know, the palace. This came from the king. Well, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life proves that his faith is genuine. The presence of the Spirit will result in, we're going to talk about this in a couple weeks, fruit that comes out. It's that, that mark, that fruit of the Holy Spirit. Those traits of the Holy Spirit coming out of our life are those marks that our faith is genuine. It was William Temple who said this, no one can be indwelt by the Spirit of God and keep that Spirit to himself. Where the Spirit is, he flows forth, and where there is no flowing forth, he is not there. But let's take this idea of the physical seal one step further. You see, when the signet ring was pressed into the wax, it left an impression. And I want to leave you with this thought. Because when God says, hey, I've sealed you with my Holy Spirit, this is what he's saying. I've impressed something on you to leave a mark on you. A mark of me and who I am. I'm, I'm, I'm impressing my mark, my presence, my character into your life. Paul would tell us in Romans 5, 5, that, that God 
has poured his love into us through the Holy Spirit. That's the mark. That's the impression. And and God wants to take that, that mark of who he is, that he's impressed upon us, the Holy Spirit, the love of God being poured into our life by the Holy Spirit. And then he wants that to be poured out of us. And what did Jesus say? Hey, they're going to know that you're my disciples. They're going to know you belong to me. How? By your love that you have for one another. So we've learned tonight the Holy Spirit is with us, pursuing us prior to coming to Christ. Once we surrender to Jesus, he comes to live inside of us and indwell us. And when that happens, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, which is that indication that we belong to God, that we are his and that we have a glorious inheritance in Jesus that we have to look forward to. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us tonight and this beautiful, wonderful truth that we can look back on and just see and realize what you were doing to draw us and pursue us, to convict us of our sin and our need of a Savior. And we thank you, Lord, that when we embrace Jesus and put our faith in Jesus, that you come to live inside of us. And Lord, we thank you so much for the beautiful assurance that we have, that we have been sealed. You put your mark on us, that we're yours that we belong to you, that you care for us, that we are your prized possession that you have purchased with the blood of your own son. And Lord, I pray tonight that as we spend the rest of the evening just uh, discussing these things in our group time together, that you would bless it. I pray, Lord, that that we would be encouraged and built up together. In Jesus' name, amen.